Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we do our Ontario Political Roundup, as we usually do on Friday. John Best, the founder of the Bay Observer, joins us, and we'll focus on the Ontario election campaign, but also discuss the uh, first conservative leadership debate. America is celebrating freedom of speech this week, but is it slipping away? And inflation is already taking a bite out of everybody's spending power, but some fear the latest rate hike could summon a more frightening apparition called stagflation. We'll get you into that as well. Interesting program coming up today, the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about, uh, well, the week that was, I suppose, politically, on the federal scene, certainly, and, uh, and of course, the Ontario election is game on for that. Uh, Jerry Smith has some of the details. Ontario's four main provincial party leaders are campaigning in the Greater Toronto area again today in a bid to shore up support in the key region. NDP leader Andrea Horvath making an announcement this morning in Toronto about a plan to expand health care. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca is in Vaughan for a morning platform announcement before heading south to Toronto to talk about his Buckaride transit pledge. Progressive Conservative leader Doug Ford is in Pickering this morning for an unspecified announcement and Green Party leader Mike Schreiner is set to make a housing announcement in Waterloo. Jerry Smith, the Canadian Press, Toronto. So I'm not talking about that and uh, also the uh, Conservative leadership debate last night too, which was, uh, well, interesting TV, shall we say. Uh, John Best joins us to do this. John, of course, is the president and the publisher of the Bay Observer. John, always a pleasure. Hope you had a good week. I have indeed, Bill. It's nice to be with you. Good to have you with us as well, and uh, lots going on. I, let's. I, I want to get into the provincial election, certainly, of course, because that's imminent, and it's it's interesting the way things are rolling up. But let me circle back to that. I want to talk about the uh, the leadership uh, debate from last night, of course. Um, a number of takeaways from this, uh, including the fact, by the way, that Patrick Brown chose not to participate, said it was more important to sell memberships. Uh, I don't know if that's going to cost him within the party or not, but the the point I wanted to jump to here was the, uh, the something I used in my uh, my commentary earlier this morning on CHML. Preston Manning apparently sent a letter to all of the candidates saying, "Hey guys, tone it down." Uh, he says, "You know, you're insulting everybody. You're you're lambasting everybody." And he says, "The other parties are writing all this stuff down, and it's going to come back and bite you because they're going to throw all those quotes back at you with whoever wins this race." Mr. Manning didn't say that the conservatives do the same thing uh, when the other guys are in that situation too. But judging from last night, John, uh, they either didn't read the letter or they didn't care. Uh, it was the usual backbiting, wasn't it? It really was. And uh, I was looking at uh, Mr. Charest in particular. Um, his campaign is interesting in the sense that, that he has decided that he is not going to play the game that the last two leaders have played, which is to try to sound like a, a real hard right wing type of candidate and then get out in the actual election and, and now try to soften his stand. And, and clearly that did not work uh, for Mr. O'Toole. And uh, so it, it's interesting. He's basically putting himself out there as a, I don't know what you want to call him, a Brian Mulroney kind of um, a conservative leader. And I guess he's gambling that uh, at the end of the day, there are enough um, you know, there's still enough moderation within the Conservative Party, probably a, a kind of a silent majority that will accept that. And and also with that more moderate stand, he's got a chance of picking up liberals who are frankly fed up with uh, with uh, Justin Trudeau. So, so that's his game and he's stuck to it. Um, I hope they're selling memberships as well because 
Patrick Brown has got it right. Um, you you have to sell memberships. You can all these rallies and they're all great, but at the end of the day, this is decided by a very grassroots memberships, and uh, we've seen that in the previous elections where you know very well known people like Peter McKay uh, end up not winning and and being deeply in debt. So uh, it, it's it's a real um, we there's a real choice in in this liberal race right or a conservative race right now. I would categorize Sheree as well. Here's a phrase we've used before: progressive conservative, which is what the party used to be called, of course, before Stephen Harper took over. And and I, you're right. I think Sheree's gambling that those people are still there, but I'm not so sure about that though, based on on what's happened in the last couple of elections and last night. I, I found it also interesting that. To see Pierre Polyev and Leslie Lewis, almost they were trying to out-convoy each other. I like the convoy best. No, I like them best. Uh, I was there first. You had, you know, and, and on and on. Notwithstanding the fact that you know the polling indicates that seventy-five percent of Canadians thought the convoy was a bad thing, uh, yet they're they're trying to take ownership of it. Yeah, I I don't know how that stand gets you one vote that you wouldn't have got anyway. Um, it, it's hard for me to see anybody that, that would be inclined to vote liberal. I mean, obviously, if you're going to win an election, you've got to get people who didn't vote for you uh, last time to now vote for you. And and this convoy stuff, I, I think everybody that's for the convoy is already voting uh, either conservative or, or the Canada party. So I, I just don't see any growth uh, in, in, it might work again internally within the party, but then you're going to get a situation like we've had in the last two elections where they, you know, the leader caters to the, to the conservative, the very conservative wing, and then has to somehow look uh, warm and fuzzy for the voters. And it, it hasn't worked and I don't think it will work. So the convoy to me is like a third rail. I, I just don't know why they'd want to go there. Well, I don't know if they do the analysis, I guess, the day after, but, uh, and there's more debates to come. And uh, we also know that Patrick Brown is a pretty good debater, too, and he chose not to, but he's going to have to get into the game uh, as they move down the road toward that, that leadership. All right, let's 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 uh, get into the politics of Ontario right now. To the surprise of nobody, of course, Doug Ford uh, went and saw the lieutenant governor on Monday and uh, dissolved uh, the legislature, and we're into election mode. The very next day, John, you saw the poll that was out that said the Conservatives had a 14-point lead almost majority territory, and you think, okay, fine, these guys, they can almost put it in neutral. The very next day, a poll comes out and says, well, that's down to seven points now, and the Liberals have surged ahead of the NDP. What's going on here? Well, I I think uh, the reason the Liberal numbers are jumping around is because uh, people are starting to uh, learn a little bit about Stephen Del Duca, who was not not very prominent even when he was a member of uh, the Cabinet. Uh, he, he's a very, you know, his personality is, is very low-key. Uh, um, he, he won't be accused of being overly charismatic ever. And so I, I think a lot of it has to do with people sort of uh, parking their, their vote. Um, I think Ford's vote is probably pretty solid. Uh, you, you notice that his number doesn't change that much. The only number that changes is who's in second place. Yeah. And um, so, you know, he's got a fairly solid base. And, and I think voters are bouncing back and forth between, uh, you know, or people that are being polled, at least, are, are bouncing back and forth at this early stage between uh, Andrea and Stephen Del Duca, probably trying to figure out who, who's going to look more like the winner of between those two. So, uh, you know, their, their promises, um, 
uh, are what, what kind of what you'd expect. Del Duca, it was kind of interesting yesterday. In both cases, uh, Del Duca and Andrea made promises that, that would be very populist. Uh, Del Duca is going to hire 20,000 teachers. She's going to uh, give out free, uh, she's going to somehow uh, accelerate, I guess, the free dental care. And in both cases, uh, there, there was kind of pushback from, from people that you'd think were going to benefit from it. A, um, a prophet, uh, one of the universities said, well, there's better ways of improving education in Ontario than hiring people. And besides, there's not enough teachers in the teachers' colleges to, to create 20,000 teachers. And, and then there was a, a little bit of the Ontario Dental Association <laughs> says um, they weren't even consulted on this dental thing. And uh, existing dental initiatives need more funding. So uh, these promises that are made on the back of an envelope can backfire sometimes. When you think of the buck a ride thing that Del Duke is promoting here, a dollar a ride uh, on public transit, and it's pretty all-encompassing, whether it's uh, you know on Go Transit, even local transit, uh, that's going to cost the government a whack of money, first of all, if he you know, becomes premier and tries to enact that. But if the long-range goal there is to get people to leave their cars at home and get on public transit, John, they've been trying to do that for 30 years, and, and they've tried a number of different tricks, and, and it just hasn't worked. I mean, so, you know, what's what's the end game here? Well, I don't know what the end game is, but I think it, I think it's bad policy, to be honest. It would be much better to provide free transit to those who are at low income, but to um, uh, I, I think it harms transit, really, to... Um, uh, you know, cut the revenue down to that extent. I mean, that, that would roughly be two thirds of, you know, most bus fares are up around three bucks anywhere in Ontario now, just under $3. And you, you take two thirds of the fare box away. Uh, I'm not sure that that is going to bring that many more people to the, you know, when you, when you do the math, how much do we lose? How much do we gain by extra riders? I, I think it's just really bad policy. Much better to subsidize or even give free transit to those who need it, and uh, and let this this transit system in Ontario has got to recover from uh, the the pandemic. And and I think the way to do that is uh, is to make it a, a affordable for government. Um, and you know, most people that are commuting to jobs can afford to pay uh, what the uh, fare box is now. So let's focus on that group and try to get them on uh, on public transit. Transit's got to grow in order for people to use it. They, you know, it's almost got to be continuous. So I, I just think that was a bad piece of policy. Because uh, this is not this is an Ontario problem. It's a national problem, really, uh, to try to get people to use public transit. And we like our vehicles. Uh, and I find it interesting. Uh, that we've made this huge commitment now to EVs. In other words, buy this car, buy this kind of car. Uh, oh, but leave it in the garage because we want you to take public transit. Uh, there's a, kind of a mixed message there. But the other side of this is, and you and I have talked about this many times before, two things have to happen for people to actually decide, okay, I'm going to go on public transit. It has to be affordable and convenient. And right now it's neither. So there's a lot to do before you finally get people to stand at the bus stop or wherever it's going to be to hop on public transit. They, 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 they just don't seem to see the big picture here. Well, the price of gas this weekend apparently is, uh, let's talk about gallons because I'm of that generation. It's now getting up into the $9 a gallon uh, category. So transit at three bucks a ride, or if you're getting a pass, uh, it probably works out to less than that, or significantly less than that. Uh, I think I think just on the on the gas issue alone, uh, that's going to drive more people to transit than a buck a ride. 
So I, I think there's an opportunity here, actually, uh, for uh, transit to, to get a bit of a lift. But for that to happen, you're right, the convenience issue is important. And that means more buses more frequently, which means more drivers, more buses, more expense. So I think, uh, you know, we, we've kind of got a, a situation here where, where transit has a chance to leap forward. And uh, I, I, again, this, this dollar, uh, uh, you know, that's not enough of an incentive for somebody. What, what will get people out of cars is, is $9 a gallon gas. Uh, what, well, and what convenience do? too. It's and, convenience. And convenience. I, mean, I, I know a guy who calls me on a regular basis on our program. He lives in the west end of Hamilton, up on the mountain. His job, unfortunately, for is, is in Stony Creek, so that's that's the other side of the city. Uh, for our listeners outside of Hamilton, and it took him an hour and a half to get to work every day, and that's using public transit. You know, I had to get this and then transfer to this, and then wait for this one to come. He says I can be there in twenty minutes if I get a car. He says it just makes sense. I'm not going to waste three hours of my day waiting for my ride uh, when I can get there and back and in, you know, a third of the time. And it, it just, that, that comes back to the convenience issue. That's the challenge uh, that transit faces everywhere. And, uh, you know, certainly the blast system, uh, if it were implemented, it would provide more direct connections east to west uh, without having to go downtown and go into McNabb Street and getting off a bus and waiting for another one. Uh, the, the blast system is designed to at least partially address some of those kind of issues, but we're a long way away from even that. Um, you know, if you're running the HSR or the London transit system right now, your your biggest problem is that these buses are running around with, uh, you know, five people on them. And yeah. uh, it's a big challenge to get people back on the bus once they've made other arrangements. Well, exactly. And therein lies part of the problem. And you're right. I mean, you, th- there is the issue of the pandemic and the impact it's had on, on public transit, but it was a mess before the pandemic. And, you know, the, like so many other things, uh, you know, the pandemic really just exacerbated an already uh, problematic situation. Right. That's uh, no, no question about it. And Ford, uh, for his part, uh, he's just, uh, he, he's in a good place, not, not only because the polls are favoring it, but he, he's in a good place because his message is so much simpler than the other two. He doesn't have to grasp it, uh, you know. Let's let's try bucket transit. Although he did try bucket beer a while back, yeah. but let you know he's 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 really laid it out uh, prior to the writ being dropped. He's uh, he's going to build highways. He's going to get rid of tolls. He's he's going you know he's uh, he's going to fix the uh, his way of fixing housing is to basically take uh, planning out of the hands of the municipalities. Um, so uh, you may not like these policies, but he's 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 absolutely laid them out and he's running on them. And uh, the public is somewhat familiar with them because not only are they're not just hearing about them now since Monday, they've been hearing about this stuff for six months now. So, you know, he can kind of, um, he doesn't have to lie awake at night figuring out what am I going to do to move the dial a little bit? You know, he's, he's already there and he's, I'm sure they've done polling on all of these issues as much as people are screaming about 413. I'm sure he's done polling and through those uh, writings and uh, and and heard that congestion is a is a huge problem and so you know he's uh, he, he's in good shape that way and he is. Uh, barring a you know a, a major scandal uh, or a major hiccup on the campaign trail uh, he can do as he did yesterday show up at uh, Caribbean barbecues and yep. he's, he's uh, 
you know, he's got the bus. He's also got the simplest message, you know, this whole thing about can do, will do, uh, the action, you know, the, there's sort of an action thing, whereas uh, to to counteract him, you have to kind of put out a negative message. So exactly. from a messaging that, that standpoint, bothers him. yeah, he's that's, up that's on... That's something he, voters like to hear. John, we got to yeah. leave it there. We're just about out of time on this segment. Uh, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll uh, sure hook up again next Friday. A lot to talk about during the campaign, but appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best from the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked earlier this week about uh, an annual event that's returned to Washington, D.C. After, uh, well, a couple of uh, years because of the pandemic, it was not going on. And even though it did go on during the Trump administration, Trump never showed up for this. This is the annual dinner of White House correspondents and, and members of the media and a few celebs that show up there. If you saw the, the, the show last uh, Saturday night and... Uh, it's basically a roast. I mean, that's what it really comes down to. I know it didn't start out that way. That was really kind of a, an opportunity for the president to make policy speeches and everybody to have a nice evening. And it's kind of morphed into a roast of the president and the president getting back with some jokes. And uh, Trevor Noah was the host uh, this past Saturday, and it was fun. And they talked a lot through the course of this evening about freedom of the press and how it's back now. Don't worry, guys. I know you guys were under attack during the Trump administration with the fake news allegations, but everything is going to be fine now. And it's not, despite what you might have heard there. Joining us to talk about this is Brian J. Karen. Brian, of course, is a political analyst on CNN. He's a White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and I want to talk about his latest piece on there, uh, and The Washington Diplomat. He is also host of a podcast uh, called Just Ask the Question, and I got something to ask about that, too. And, of course, we've told you about his book over the last couple of months. Uh, it's a great read. It's called Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, I've read all the things on the CV, and I don't think we have time for the interview now. Thanks a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, Ann. Buy the book and buy early, buy often. Buy it, yeah. i got to ask you about the podcast, too, because I heard about this the other day, and I saw it in the Salon column the other day. They talked about uh, the panel discussion that you guys had with, uh, I think, two of the great, well, three, including yourself, of the great White House reporters, uh, Jim Acosta from CNN, and the legendary Sam Donaldson. Uh, now, I know you know both of these guys, and you've worked with them and talked with them for years and years, but it had to be a real hoot to actually sit down and, and have this discussion about a subject that I know is near and dear to all three of you. Yeah, well, Sam is my mentor, and as, uh, you know, as much as I, I, I love having him around because he's as irascible now as he's ever been, a <laughs> uh, fun guy to have in a room and, and talk with, and great sense of humor, and the same with Jim Acosta. Both of them are, and Jim's been my friend for, you know, uh, probably six or seven years, and, t- you know, it was fun for three people who have fought that battle against White Houses, you know, and it wasn't just, you know, the worst was Trump, but, you know, we've, we've had this ongoing struggle which is a um a natural one and it and it's one that has to be there we are the you know this is where you grind things out and that's between the press and the and the president so it was for three people who are like-minded in how the job is to be done it was absolutely a, a wonderful time to sit and, and talk. So, yeah, it was great. Loved it. Well, and you've all got the battle scars. I mean, you know, Donaldson <laughs> yeah. with, with the Reagan administration are legendary. And, and oh, yeah. both you and Acosta had your press credentials pulled by Trump. I mean, so, you know, yeah. uh, you didn't even get the T-shirt for it, uh, Brian, but, you you know, you went through the war anyway. 
<laughs> That's the next thing. We're going to get T-shirts. <laughs> I fought the law and I won. <laughs> yeah. And it was interesting, too, as I was watching the, the, the Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday, and they kept talking about this. And, and I got to tell you, it, it just flashed back to basically the message in the book, you know, free the press, because you chronicled basically the beginning and where we are now with the demise of freedom of the press in so many instances. And and uh, your point's well taken. I mean, there is, I think by definition, there's always going to be a conflict between the, the press and, and the White House administration or the prime minister administration, of course, in this country, because uh, that's your job. Uh, and yeah. it's not to embarrass them, it's to inform. And presidents, Democrat and Republican, have put up barriers to that for a long, long time now. Well, it's kind of started with Nixon, as I said before, you know, Nixon was a poison and a cancer and a stain. And but it was Reagan who really made that cancer metastasize. Um, and he, it's been one long struggle. And each president since Reagan has contributed to the demise of the free press in the United States, whether it's getting rid of the Fairness Doctrine or the Telecommunications Act or the Patriot Act or in, or Obama prosecuting uh, whistleblowers, every president's gone after us. And sometimes we roll over and take it, and we shouldn't. But it's it's disheartening to see <clears throat> young reporters who believe that their entire job is to sit in the briefing room and ask a question, and that's how you judge what they do. And that's not that that's not journalism. That's stenography. And there are a lot of journalists that can be counted on to ask questions that are fed to them. Um, and then there are a lot of reporters who are capable of doing better and can't because of the corporate environment in which they work. And there's fewer and fewer independent uh, reporters there who can't be controlled by the president. And the last act of control is to just cut them out. If they won't play ball, then you just cut them out. And that's what Biden has done and has tried to do. So it's, as you said, as you pointed out in the beginning, it, this problem hasn't gone away. It didn't start with Trump. He's a symptom, not a cause. And each party in this country has done its best to try and hobble the First Amendment. And uh, it's just an ongoing battle and always will be unless we roll over and play dead. And I have no intention of doing that. Well, and you made, a, I think, a very interesting point in the book about this, too. Uh, to a certain extent, I mean, the, the, the media and the press corps is... is somewhat responsible for their own demise because of the people they put there. I mean, there was a time when you, you had to have some miles under your belt before you actually got the gig, you know, as White House correspondent. Uh, you know, the, the, you had to prove yourself uh, that you were worthy of such an appointment. And as, as you mentioned in the book, you, you're bumping into people in, in the White House when you're there covering and you figure, who's this guy? You know, they're not even shaving yet, or they're right out of college. <laughs> you're, and, you know, yeah, they're, and you're, they're still you're, in training you're, pants. I'm yeah, telling you. And, <laughs> yeah, that's true. the White House press corps. Not, not all of them, but, you know. There's, no, uh, but in, in point of fact, the first day I walked into that briefing room in 1986, it was Sam Donaldson who pointed out to me on that day. He said, Brian, listen and watch the first row in the Brady briefing room. That first row of seven people there, there's more than 200 years of experience. You can learn from all of them. Today, in that first row, there's maybe 50 years of experience among seven people. There are people that are coming out of uh, school and going straight to the White House. Arguably, one of the most important beats on the planet, being staffed by people who don't know how to get sources, don't know how to establish relationships, don't know how to report, and are fresh out of school and easy to manipulate by both their corporate, uh, the corporate owners and by the president because uh, they want to keep their job. So they're going to do what their corporate owners want. And then 
they want to have access and and the white house plays them on that so yeah it's a manipulated contrived uh it's going to the uh briefing room these days is uh, it it to me it's like going to a bad daycare center well because they see for instance what happened to you uh, you know, because you were insistent upon this. I mean, you know, that one incident that I know we've talked about in the past when yep. Trump basically told you to shut up and sit down and you wouldn't. Uh, you uh, more than one occasion he tried that. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm sure the, the younger people in the press corps see that and say, God, I, I don't want that to happen to me. You know, I, I don't want my boss to find out that I got booted out of the press corps. Uh, so they, they acquiesce to, to stuff like this. And that's that's not their job. No, and corporate ownership really doesn't care too much about that. They just care about money. So um, whenever journalism is held hostage by the money, you're going to get what people want rather than what they need. That's capitalism. I, I'll sell you what you want. That's why you'll buy some more. So that's why uh, journalism and capitalism. And look, I'm, I'm a fervent capitalist. Like I said at the beginning today, buy my book early, buy it often, tune into the podcast, contribute to Save the Brian Karam Fund. I'm all for capitalism. But journalism and capitalism are, shouldn't be tethered together. It should be uh, protected. And that's one of the things that we had done earlier with the Fairness Doctrine, with a shield law for reporters that would help that. Removing the money from uh, how we report is as important as what we report, because what we report can't be reported if we don't have the freedom to do it. And you mentioned in, in the article that appeared just a couple of days ago in Salon.com, that very thing about the shield law. And, and even some hardcore Republicans are saying, well, yeah, I'd support something like that. Well, why haven't they done it then? McConnell doesn't seem to be opposed to it, at least not on you know, no. recorded comments he's made. So no. move it, Mitch. Come on, you can move mountains, Mitch, or you can stop mountains from moving when it comes to Supreme right. Court appointees. Uh, why aren't you? What, so they're talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk here. Well, that's politics in the United States. It's full of people that we have, like I've often said, we have two parties in this country. One has no heart and one has no head. And uh, together they might make one decent human being, but it's doubtful. Um, the problem with uh, politicians in the United States is they've got their hands in the pockets of organizations that control uh, the money flow so they can run for reelection and win. So it's uh, when politics is tethered to money and capitalism, that's a problem, too. So that's, you know, if we there are things that we can do, but there are things that we haven't done and there are things that we won't do because Again, everything is tethered to the buck and, you know, the buck doesn't stop anywhere. It just keeps flowing, baby. And that's the problem in the U.S. with politics. So it, it to free the press, actually, and I recommend it in the book I, and I put it in that column, too. It's we need a, a we need a shield law so reporters and whistleblowers are protected. We need to break up the media monopolies, and that's probably the biggest, most controversial thing I'll say, and, and at least according to you know uh, the media monopolies who don't want that to happen and don't want anyone to know about it. But think about it. When I got into this business 35, 40 years ago, there were 80% of what you see, reader, here was controlled by maybe two dozen companies. And today in the United States, what you see, read, and hear are controlled by five companies. Some of these large media monopolies have more power than many countries in disseminating information. That can be a bad thing when it's tied and tethered to money. So break up the media monopolies and reinstitute the fairness doctrine, which gave us the evening news, which means that people like Hannity and uh, the, oh, I can't even Tucker Carlson, you know, those, those Putin loyalists will be exposed for who they are because they'll have to, 
put fair and balanced stuff in what they do. So those are the things that we can do. I don't know that we will do them. And I know that they will cause people a lot of consternation. But if you're going to support a free press, you have to do those things. And then finally, the last thing I'll say about that, what you really need to do is, you know, it was really nice to see the uh, tribute to fallen journalists Mm-hmm. during the uh, White House Correspondents Association dinner. However, one reporter was noticeably missing from that, and that was Jamal Khashoggi. Yep. And Jamal Khashoggi's death is imperative to recognize because it was executed by agents of the Saudi Arabian government with ties to the, the prince. That's been proven. And this uh, reporter, for what he wrote, was uh, not only killed but dismembered and and torched we didn't do anything about that and he worked for the washington post he was a columnist he was living in this country he worked for one of the largest newspapers in this country and neither trump nor biden have done anything about it now biden can come out and say he supports the free press but every terrorist potentate on this on this planet knows that we will do nothing if they kill a reporter What the message has been sent is that reporters are free to grab and kill as long as you're tied to a potentate or tied to the government in any country. And that is frightening. There is uh, a reporter that went went missing in Turkey who has uh, his name is Ibrahim Hoshiku, and I know him. He was jailed simply for writing something that had occurred and the government didn't like it. He didn't have any confidence. He just said, you know, like the building fell down and they didn't like it. So they put him in jail. Now he's out and he's still fearful for his life. But that kind of manipulation of journalists are going to occur if we in this country don't step up and make people accountable for taking the lives of journalists. Well, and, and you're right. And I mean, that's that's on the administration of the day. And you're, it's, it's going back so many years. Oh, so Bob Simon from CBS, remember, he got kidnapped uh, yep. in, in, during that war. And he was gone for, what, two, 21, 22 days, something like that? Nobody knew yeah, where I was, he was. I was about a, a hundred yards away from where he was when he got, or actually, I guess maybe about a half a mile. We didn't, he made a left turn when he should, it was, it was like the Daffy Duck, you know, or, and, and uh, Bugs Bunny cartoon. I knew I should have made that left at Albuquerque. I mean, yeah. he made a wrong turn and ended up in a bad place. And um, that was uh, that was a very dangerous time and situation for Bob. And it was, you know, not made better by uh, politics. Well, he should have listened to the directions that, uh, you know, Geraldo was giving because he was telling the world exactly where the troops were going and what they were doing. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, I, my favorite, want... I'll tell you real quick, my favorite story yeah, yeah. from that Gulf, from Gulf War was I was standing about 100 yards away from um, – the anchor for the CBS News, who shall remain nameless, who was the anchor at the time. And uh, he was standing I had no more than a hat, well, maybe 50 feet away from me. And he goes, from the uh, northernmost uh, point on the line, I'm farther ahead than anybody else, blah, blah, blah. And he gives his stand up. And I go, damn, I'm standing 50 feet away from him. And he's taking credit as if he's out here all by himself. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'll never forget that as long as I live. <laughs> That's it. Brian Williams pulled a similar stunt too. I think we're out of time. We're uh, again. The book is uh, is called "Free the Press: The Death of American Journalism." It's available. I, I got mine on Amazon. You can get them a lot. And of course, check out the podcast too. Just ask the question. Brian, always a pleasure. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Have fun. Take care, Brian Karam. Of course, always a, a, a 
joy to have on this program with his insights. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Over the last couple of weeks now, we've been talking about some uh, economic concerns, shall we say. Uh, interest rates from the Bank of Canada have risen. Uh, the Federal Reserve down in the States just wrote, uh, increased their interest rates a little while ago. And markets are taking a beating. And of course, we're told now uh, about something called stagflation. We're going to get to that in a couple of seconds, but uh, it's worth of, uh, worthy of note, by the way, that RC, RBC Economics uh, says that inflation and rising borrowing costs are going to affect everybody, as if we hadn't already noticed that. Don Kelly has some details for us. Economists at the Royal Bank say a return of the Bank of Canada's key interest rate to 2% will hike average household debt payments by nearly $2,000, or 15% next year. But the debt service ratio of low-income Canadians will rise at twice the speed of high-income households through next year. RBC estimates lower-income Canadians will be more affected because they spend a much larger share of their earnings on consumer purchases and have a smaller cash cushion to deal with rising prices. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. Well, let's dissect this if we can then and find out just what is happening here. And we'll get into the stagflation situation uh, in just a couple of seconds. Uh, pleased to be joined by Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Uh, Ian, always a pleasure. Thanks for jumping with us today. really appreciate the time. My pleasure, Bill. Let me ask you right off the top. I want to get into the stagflation thing and what's going on with prices in a second. That's very important, of course. The markets took a beating when they opened this morning, and it was not a good day for them yesterday, too. That usually indicates that the people that control the money aren't happy with what's going on. What, what, how do you see this? Well, you're right. There's a huge amount of volatility right now, and, um, uh, and that's because the markets, and when I say the markets, I'm talking investors, people that buy and sell yeah. shares, uh, people that buy and sell bonds. This includes pension funds. It includes wealthy people, hedge funds. doesn't really matter who they are. All the different people out there that buy and sell financial instruments. And a financial instrument is always a bet on the future. Where is the future going? And I mean by that more precisely and concretely, where are interest rates going? Where is inflation going? Where's the GDP growth rate going? Because all of this affects the profitability of, of uh, firms. It affects the value of the shares. And the value of the shares are indirectly influenced by interest rates because as the interest rates go up, I can get a better return on a, on a bond, on a GIC. Um, and um, so they're competitive substitutes buying a bond for a stock. Um, you know, everyone assumes all stocks go up, but not all stocks go up in value. Some can go down. Whereas a bond, you know, if you have a bond at paying 5% a year interest, well, then you've got a guaranteed income stream of 5% a year on your bond. So what's happening now is that the inflation is becoming more embedded than people originally thought, starting with the governor of the Bank of Canada and the governor of the Fed, uh, the, the head of the Fed. And um, so now they're realizing belatedly I think uh, too, a little bit slow. They should have moved much more quickly. But now they're realizing inflation is becoming embedded. And now the Federal Reserve head and the governor of the Bank of Canada are, are becoming much more uh, hawkish. They're sending much more aggressive, saying we're going to have to raise interest rates higher and steeper and for longer than we thought. And this is scaring the daylights out of investors. And because they realize that higher interest rates will cool down the economy, will cool down demand, which, of course, is what they're trying to do. It will cool down growth. It will lead to lower profits. It will lead to lower returns on your investment. Nobody wants their investments to go down. They want them to go up. So if you think your investment is going to go down, what are you going to do? 
sell it before it goes down. So everybody stampedes for the exit. And, and that's what's going on right now. You were one of the people that, that we talked to, actually one of the, the voices that was consistent about this, that insisted that the, the Bank of Canada, well, Governor Macklem anyway, uh, waited too long to do this. Would this yeah. be any less severe had they jumped on this when they probably should have? I think it would have been less severe. Um, and by the way, I don't have any, I don't want anyone to think I'm suggesting I have, I'm smarter or more insightful than the governor of the Bank of Canada. These are all judgments about the future. Uh, literally the future. Nobody knows where interest rates are going or inflation is going. So you have to make judgments. And sometimes many of us look at the past. And, and, and so that's the first point. And the second point I want to make very quickly is judgments about inflation uh, and whether they're, they're becoming embedded or not is really a judgment about the psychology in the brain of millions of consumers. So when some, some people wrote me and said, well, how come you think you know more than the governor of the Bank of Canada? It's not that I know more. I don't. Uh, he's a very smart guy. He's a very experienced guy, uh, very knowledgeable guy, very educated guy. But we're talking about judgments. It's not something you can look in a textbook and say, aha, this is what consumers think on May the 5th, 2022. It's a judgment about the future. And because I lived through the 70s and because I'm of that age, I remember what it was like and how the inflation started creeping up and becoming embedded. And, and it's unfortunate. I know people don't like it, but interest rates is really the only tool that the, the central bank has and to cool down inflation. And if you, the longer you postpone the day of reckoning, the greater the surgery or the medicine needed. It's just like getting sick. You know, if you have a, 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 an illness that isn't treated, it will get worse. And then you have to take more aggressive treatment measures to address the cancer, for example. And if you move more, that's why detection is so important and responding quickly is so important to a diagnosis. It's the same with central banks and inflation. I believe if they had responded a year ago when the inflation was emerging and becoming visible, uh, they should have started to back off on their stimulus. And let me, Bill, I got to say this because it's really, really important. People say, oh, well, you know, they've cut back. They've ended the stimulus. No, the governor of Canada has not. No, the Federal Reserve and the central and the governor of the United States has not. Both countries are running big fiscal deficits. A deficit is stimulus. You're putting money into the economy that isn't there, so to speak, because you're borrowing it. You're printing it. On the, on the monetary side, the stimulus is keeping the rate below the so-called neutral rate. And the neutral rate is very simple conceptually. It's where the interest rate is not stimulating the economy nor cooling the economy. And they can measure it approximately. And right now, the governor, our governor of our bank says the, the neutral rate is between two and 3%, but the actual central bank rate is at 1%. So that means we're still stimulating the economy with rates too low and we're putting money in through the fiscal side, through deficits, that is completely unnecessary because the economy has completely recovered. All the jobs lost from the pandemic have been recovered, plus a whole bunch more have been created. And the economy, according to the Central Bank of Canada, is running at capacity. In other words, it's running full tilt. And so there's no need whatsoever for monetary stimulus or fiscal stimulus. And so they're making the problem worse. 
Okay, and, and I understand that because I lived through that stuff in the 70s, too. Uh, yep. Bought my first house in the early 80s. So my yes. first time I think I owned a car was in the late 70s. And I was just referring yep. uh, with our audience a little while before you joined us uh, about, you know, one of the the causes of that, of course, was when OHEP pulled the plug on on, uh, on fuel uh, supplies all of a sudden. And, you know, remember we had the gas stations that were closed on yep. the weekends and lineups right. five blocks long just to fill your gas tank. And you're right, the, the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve of the states reacted. And, and the net result of that was, it always takes a couple of years, as you told us, it doesn't happen overnight, were those 19% mortgages uh, that a lot of us got yeah. stuck with when yeah. we tried to buy those houses. Now, I'm not suggesting it's going to go back up to 19% no, now. No. But what I'm getting from my old memories of that, Ian, and from what you're telling me now, consumer behavior is a factor here, too, that we don't seem to want to talk about. You're, you're absolutely right. We do know. I mean, because it's been studied. So I'm not putting theory to anybody who says, oh, every tower academic just giving me the theory. No, 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 no. This is not theory. I was a bank manager. I was a mortgage manager at the Bank of Montreal in Ottawa, opposite Parliament Hill. Okay. When rates were hitting 14, 15, 17, 18, 19. And let me tell you, anybody who thinks this is a theory hasn't looked at the data. When the rates I bought my house, I was paying, I got my house at 10 and a quarter in 1977. And then they went up from there and, and I was a mortgage manager. So I was doing 50 deals roughly a month because it was the main office branch. And as the rates went up, I am telling you every month we were writing less mortgages, fewer mortgages, fewer people walked in the door saying, Hey, I want to borrow a mortgage at 17%. And when it hit 20%, I think I was doing two deals a month, like literally two customers a month because they were desperate because it was a divorce or something like that. My point is interest rates do work. The problem is they impose big pain They because they slow down the economy. And the risk is you can tip too far and, and push the economy into a recession, which is what they did in 1980. We had the worst recession since the Great Recession. It wasn't deliberate, but they were so determined to squeeze inflation out of the system and just kill it, literally kill it, that they, in, in the process, drove the economy into recession. What, what they're trying to do right now, both the Central Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve, is they're trying to achieve what they call a soft landing. And that's code talk for saying we want to cool down the economy, slow down the GDP, slow down the inflation, but we don't want to tip it into a recession. That's a hard landing. A recession's a hard landing bringing down the inflation and the and the GDP growth rate from, let's say, 5 or 6% down to 2%, that's a soft landing. That's what they're trying to do. But to bring this back full circle to the markets, they're increasingly worried or concerned uh, that the they're going to overshoot because they postponed raising rates, both countries, because they postponed confronting the inflation. They're afraid now they're going to overshoot achieve unaccidentally achieve a hard landing which is called a recession where people lose their jobs but these guys are all experienced as, as you are yep. Yep. Uh, they the warning signs were there ian I'm, and and i'm wondering and i'm not trying to say okay this is all on the bank of canada certainly it's not but you know in and when we came out of that terrible recession you talked about in the late 70s into the early 80s uh yeah. you know the economists then said this is never going to happen again we're just not going to allow this to happen we've got to act well we haven't learned from history here because we saw it coming now i'll cut them a little slack they they didn't go through a pandemic like we did for two years and and that was certainly an x factor in, in the 
the, well, the, the way the economy crashed eventually now is trying to get back. But the signs are still there. They did, uh, inflation didn't just pop up here three weeks ago. It started right. during the pandemic. And, and as we started the economic recovery, it was there, too. And, you know, why not start earlier? Why not react sooner? And, and, and as you say, stem the flow. Bill, I think you put your finger on the problem. And, and my now I'm going to quote my interpretation. I can't prove this. This is just my, my belief of what happened. The, the decision makers, and the, let's be not be so abstract, the prime minister, the minister of finance, the governor of the Bank of Canada in Canada, and the equivalent people, decision makers in the States, were so freaked out, to use very unacademic language, they were so freaked out by the pandemic that I think they overshot because they thought that we were going to hell in a handcart and they thought the economy was going over the cliff. I never believed that. And again, I couldn't go and quote it from a textbook or anything. I just knew that, look, if the government arbitrarily shuts everything down and tells everybody they stay home, okay, of course you're going to drive the economy over the cliff. But the moment you end the lockdown, guess what happens? It snaps back like an elastic rubber band. People don't just say, okay, I'm going to stay home, even though, uh, you know, the government said I can I can leave my house and go back to work. The reality is we all have, most of us aren't rich. We have to work. We have to pay our mortgage and our groceries. So guess what? We go back to work when the lockdown ends and the economy recovers like instantaneously overnight. And, and in April, the April 21 budget, Christia Freeland said, and it was an amazing insight that almost nobody focused on. She said, we, the decision makers, substantially underestimated the resilience in the economy after the lockdowns ended. In other words, the economy came back very strongly each time after each lockdown. But they were so freaked out that the economy was not going to come back quickly and strongly that they overstimulated. They reduced the rates too low. They ran up deficits too large, I argue. It's not that I have some kind of a phobia about deficits. It's that it was providing stimulus. And then the inflation took, and then the supply chains got interrupted. Inflation started to become embedded. And here they were pouring gasoline, high-octane jet fuel on the fire and saying, oh, my goodness, look at those inflation. Look at that inflation. Well, of course, I'm not saying they caused it. They didn't. But they made it much worse. When the firefighters show up, they're supposed to shoot water on the fire, not gasoline on the fire. One retards the fire. The other makes the fire worse and bigger. And that's what I'm arguing that they did. Both fiscally, the Minister of Finance, the government, and the Governor of Bank Canada decided they wanted to put more stimulus than they should have into the economy. And now, and now it's taking off on them. And now they're realizing, oh, my God, we've got a serious problem because inflation when it becomes embedded it's a real son of a gun to get rid of it as we saw in 1979 80 when they had to drive the rates up to 20. i'm not suggesting we're going to have to go to 20 bill but i'm telling you this mortgages have broken five percent in the states i think we're going to see rates the central bank rate within a year and a half it's going to be way way higher than one percent it might be up at two and a half three which would suggest mortgage rates well north of five percent in canada maybe six percent mortgages and now that's going to cool down the housing market <laughs> let's be no mistake For about sure, that yeah. but that's where I, I think we're going i only got a couple of minutes left but i got to ask you this because i i can remember conversations i had with you and this is maybe only a year into the pandemic when we thought we were coming out of it after that first wave and and you and many other economists ian said look at 
it's going to bounce back just as you described you know we've got all this money because we haven't been able to go anywhere as soon as they open yep. the doors for us to get out of our basements again and the stores open we're going to spend yep. like crazy and the economy is going to bounce back and it, if if the economists knew this and i assume some people in government knew this why did they panic then i think it was political and i don't mean partisan well of course it does end up as partisan because they are in parliament as as members of different parties but uh it's not just i'm not trying to blame the mps you know what i'm saying they were worried that they were going to get uh attacked in the court of public opinion in the media by academics by journalists by opposition members and so i think that that they were so as i said freaked out and i mean by freaked out not just the actual uh economic conditions but by the criticism of them when the bad numbers came out, that they thought, well, okay, I'm going to overdo it, which will give me political cover, political protection. So if somebody says, you idiot finance minister, look at these numbers. You say, hey, wait a minute. Hey, I just ran up the deficit to $400 billion. What are you talking about? I'm not doing enough. So I think that's what I mean by political. It was done to, to, to provide a, uh, a response to criticism that they weren't, quote, doing enough. They said, what are you talking about? We've done more than anybody. And it's true. We overstimulated more than any other G7 country. Canada and the U.S. were way overstimulated compared to Germany, U.K., Italy, France, and the other high-income countries. And now we're paying the price. And now the Fed realizes that Powell is very conscious of this. And so is so is our Governor Tiff Macklem in his interviews. He's saying, look, we're going to have to put on the uh, brakes a lot harder now. So they're saying this publicly. It's not just me saying this. They're recognizing they let it get out of hand and now they're stamp stomping on the brakes real hard and we're going to see more interest rates this year all the way through this year for the rest of this year and i predict into 2023 we're going to see more interest rates no we're not going to 20 percent of course we're not going to 12 but i could see the central bank rate being significantly higher and i think we're going to be seeing mortgages within a year or so in the six possibly seven percent range not the two percent three percent range that we've become accustomed to over the last two three years that will cool the housing market by the way whether it will bring it down from the elevated huge increase of the last two years i don't know but i i i, I it's going to cool the market all markets but it's going to really cool home ownership markets, the real estate market, because housing is so sensitive to interest rates more than anything else, because it's a large amount of money, a mortgage financed over a long period of time equals big payment. <laughs> so the higher the interest rate, the bigger your payment for everybody listening. So it's going to affect the mortgage market and the, the value of the housing market. I just can't tell you how much, but I think it will cool it down quite significantly. And we won't hear of all these stories of houses going for 200,000 over, over ask, over list, or 300,000. Um, I, I think we're going to see the markets really cool down as those rates continue to go up. And I'm predicting a 0.5 increase uh, the next announcement, which is only in four or five weeks. Ian, always a pleasure to get your insight into this. I, I, I know we're out of time. I find it interesting that the two countries that overcompensated the most candidate in the U.S. Uh, both had federal elections that year. And, and in yes. those situations, politicians tend to give people what they want instead of what they need to hear. Uh, exactly. We could be suffering, the, the, I guess, the fallout from that. Uh, have a great weekend, Ian. We'll talk again soon on this. Thank you for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you.
Take care. Ian Lee, of course, from the Sprott School of Business at uh, Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.